Hello, welcome to Songs for the Struggling Artist, the blogcast. This is episode 55. And this one today is um, uh, post number four in my ongoing Generation X series. Um, thank you for sticking with me. It is turning out to be quite an opus. Each, each time I think I am finished, something else bubbles up and, and then I have an additional thing I have to say. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you for sticking with me if Generation X is not that interesting to you. Um, and thank you for sticking with me if, if it is. So um, I'm glad to have you listening in any case. Um, this one is... I'm hoping almost even more relevant to to um, other generations, particularly the younger generations. Um, fingers crossed. I don't know. You let me know. Um, and it is a long one, so I think I'm going to just dive in and, and give it to you. This is part four, I'm the only one. If you haven't seen it, Reality Bites was a film about a bunch of 20-somethings trying to figure out what to do with themselves after college. A subject that would never play with contemporary 20-somethings. Oh wait, that's the exact premise of Girls. Singles was also in this genre. So was Kicking and Screaming. And also Last Days of Disco. And St. Elmo's Fire. The funny thing about thinking about the movies of my youth is realizing the sorts of men that the culture wanted me to find attractive. Watching clips of The Breakfast Club anew helped me understand a lot about why I was attracted to jerks in my youth. Oh, Bender, you're just misunderstood. Reality Bites taught me that it was better to be with a cool asshole than a nice square. Lindy West's article, I rewatched Reality Bites and it's basically a manual for shitheads, sums up the issues of that film quite hilariously and succinctly. Heathers featured a sexy sociopath that you're supposed to find attractive and then realize that he's an actual murderer, and that's not really so cool, you know? In music, boys were nasty and wild and bad. In singles, the bar for men was so low that all the Bridget Fonda character wanted was a man who'd say bless you when she sneezed. The ideal Gen X man was a scruffy, tortured cynic who told it like it was. And pretty much this cut across genre. David Foster Wallace is the literary Gen X man. Kurt Cobain is the music version. It's a sort of hyper-masculinity, a hyper-cool, and it was clearly toxic. Almost every icon who embodied it eventually killed himself. Keep it together, Ethan Hawke. We're rooting for you. Eddie Vedder, do you need anything? Any kind of support group we can send you to? The quintessence of Gen Xness was a sort of aggrieved masculinity. While Renona Ryder may have been a Gen X icon, she was always in a relationship with this type of cool dude. There was never a real Gen X feminist movement. We were told our mothers had taken care of that for us, and surely our mothers hoped they had. Some of our mothers, and fathers, there were some feminist fathers then too, bought us free to be you and me, and from that we learned that mommies were people and daddies were people and William had a doll and it was all right for all of us to cry. Lego was for all of us and girls were told we could be anything we wanted. But it wasn't that easy. 
I'll leave it to a male Gen X writer to speak to how boys took on these messages, but I can say that there weren't that many models for girlhood back then. The percentage of girls in film and TV has gone up in the last decade or so due to Gina Davis's remarkable Institute for Gender and Media, but when I was a child, there was pretty much just Josie and the Pussycats for me. And watching clips of that now, I'm a little disturbed by how much those costumes look like kitty versions of the Playboy bunnies. On the Smurfs, being a girl was the girl character's only trait. While the entire village was full of male serfs with one defining characteristic, brainy, jokey, painter, etc. The one girl was just Smurfette, the girl one. The Muppets main characters were mostly male, where once again the only major female character was defined by her femaleness and her species. And while Miss Piggy has a distinctive personality, other animals have names that define them more than their species. What if Fozzie the Bear had been Mr. Bear, or Rolf the Dog had been Mr. Doggy, or Kermit was Mr. Froggy? At home, we learned we could do anything, but at school and in pop culture, it became clear that mostly we were supposed to be cute, pretty, and or sexy. We were supposed to get ourselves boyfriends this way, cool boyfriends who'd maybe say bless you when we sneeze, but we'd, who'd admire us and tell us we were pretty. Oh, and maybe also we could go to college and learn things and maybe have a little career while we were doing that. Nothing too demanding, you understand. We weren't going to be challenging anyone for their jobs, don't worry. We just want to have a little something to make us interesting enough to marry. I was a pretty feminist kid, and I hung out with feminists, but I also wanted a boyfriend. And I felt that I'd have to sell out a little of the sisterhood, a little of my feminist sensibility to enjoy the affections of dudes. This same impulse made its way into my career. My dream was to perform in the theater, but I clocked pretty quickly that the professional theater was not a feminist friendly place. And one of my first acting jobs, I was berated by a costume designer because I did not own a push-up bra. You want to be an actress? And you don't have a push-up bra, he said, horrified, before fitting me for the costume with the plunging neckline. I wanted to work, so I kept my feminist feelings to myself. I bought a push-up bra. I auditioned for floozies and girlfriends and vamps and worked in companies where men always outnumbered women, sometimes three to one. I knew the deck was stacked before I started, but my belief in myself was so powerful, I thought it would overcome anything. Even a sexist theatrical landscape. I believed I could transform the world around me. Newsflash, I didn't quite. And this is a mistake that every generation seems to make. We think that by raising our girls to believe that they can do anything, that they will. But we don't, if we don't make inroads into changing the systemic sexism, we continue to perpetuate the same patterns. Belief is a wonderful thing, but without systemic changes, the same old shit gets reinforced. The thing is, I expect older generations to be sexist, and I expected my generation to be sexist. I saw what they were seeing. I heard their jokes. I got into those arguments about boys just being better than girls. What troubles me are the sexists that are younger than me. Because I had some idea that the generations behind me were so much more open, so much more diverse. That's what the media tells me. Millennials have a reputation for being well ahead on cultural openness, and a lot of them are. But some didn't get that memo. According to this article, the KKK was about to go out of business, but are back in play due to the revitalization in the young. A third of millennials who voted, voted for Lil Donnie T. 
This doesn't fit into the story of who millennials are in the common imagination. Avocado toast and Nazis wouldn't seem to be compatible. Also, if avocado toast is a millennial invention, I applaud you because it is awesome. Millennial feminists are rocking it so hard. I love the exuberance and the vitality of their fight. They started a dye your underarm hair trend. I love that. But I watch millennial men enjoy the same sense of entitlement that my male peers did and that the generation before them did. And I can see from this angle how patriarchy gets handed down from one entitled fella to another like property. In my local coffee shops, I see 22-year-old men already in the seats of power while the 22-year-old women chat about their internships at a magazine. I see young women defer while young men take, and it is so much worse to watch a young man do this than an old. I see young women baffled by a system that they thought was fair when they were getting good grades in school, but that doesn't seem to want them when they graduate. The system banks on young women not noticing the hurdles to their goals until they're older, and the system doesn't value them anymore. It banks on young women being so busy trying to shape their bodies to an ideal to please some imaginary man that they won't have time to change the world. Gen X just got wise to this. We crossed over into the middle space and light bulbs have started to flash. No one's coming to fix this for us. Percentage-wise, American Gen Xers vote more than any other generation. We are politically engaged. We are calling misogyny. We are calling bullshit, but we don't have the numbers. We're the smallest generation. So, millennial women, I'm especially talking to you, and to you, Generation Z, and whatever we're calling the generation after you. You probably stopped reading this a long while ago, if you're reading it all, or listening. But if you're still here, thank you. And I'm just going to tell you what I wish someone had told me earlier. You may think from where you're standing that you will be the woman to beat the odds, that sexism won't have its way with you. But even if you do beat the odds, one way or another, sooner or later, sexism will become apparent if it's not obvious already. You can be the valedictorian of your class, marry an attractive man, try and shape your appearance to please the masses, do all the work, win a bunch of battles, be fierce and capable and prepared, and you'll still be beaten by a man with none of your accomplishments or skill. You think it won't happen to you, that you are the exception. And I hope you will be the exception. But I have yet to see a woman make it through a few decades without some patriarchal bruises, even if she doesn't recognize them as such. If you start fighting it now, millennials and Gen Z and beyond, maybe you won't have to watch the generations that follow you go through the same frustrating cycle. This makes me think of Good Girls Revolt, the TV series. The book is fantastic, too. Good Girls Revolt tells the story of the young women working at Newsweek in the 1960s. In the TV series, there is a character who doesn't join the lawsuit filed by most of the employees, the female employees, at first, because she's doing well. She gets opportunities other women aren't given. She feels exceptional because she's the one beating the odds. She rises in the ranks. Then. In her position as the token woman, she runs face first into some high-level sexism. The show perfectly illustrates why the exceptionalism we can fall victim to can be so damaging to our progress as a whole. Our power is in collectivity. 
Each generation seems to look at the ones before it, blaming them for their troubles, while meanwhile, in our own midst, the same trouble is brewing. While I was busy worrying about the baby boomer patriarchs and the OG Xers in charge, many of the men in my generation were busy learning how to take their places. I missed it because I was too busy working on my exceptionalism. Now, as I watch it grow up behind me, I see how it happened. We hope each generation will be better than the last, and in some ways, they are. But the patriarchy is still in the water. I know some amazing millennials of all genders, but watching entitled white male millennials embrace their power gives me the shivers. Because the world has a slot for them that they only have to step into to fill. This happened in my generation too, but I missed it because I was too busy looking at the sexism ahead to worry about the sexism next to me, and there was plenty. When I started my theater company in 2001, there were dozens of others doing the same. But as I went on, the men's companies received recognition while the women's companies floundered. The companies started by men were reviewed and funded and mentored and fostered and encouraged while the women worked on in obscurity until most of their companies finally folded. While it was happening, I thought it was just me, that somehow my work just wasn't as good as all those guys getting reviews. It was exceptionalism again, but the shadow side of exceptionalism. And in my generation, pointing this sort of thing out wasn't cool. And as we learned from our films and music, cool was the best thing to be. So I went along, hoping to swing from the shadow exceptionalism to the one in the light. I think a lot of us did this. Maybe every generation falls victim to exceptionalism. Each generation thinks it will be the one to beat the odds. Each generation blames the other generations for the problem in our own. Perhaps nothing makes us more American than this attachment to exceptionalism. Even if we don't necessarily believe in American exceptionalism, that is, if we don't think we are an exceptional nation, for example, we might still find ourselves believing we are exceptional individuals. I suspect that this impulse to believe we will be the exception is how we end up with such abysmal safety nets, such terrible health care, and so on. We always think we will be the ones to rise above, that we won't get sick, that we alone will beat the odds. It is the dark shadow of American optimism. Maybe Generation X is the dark shadow of the optimism of the generations that surround us. And that is part four, my friends and listeners. Um, I'm not sure what more to say about it. That's a lot to say. <laughs> so um, the song I'm going to put here at the end is um, a Melissa Etheridge song. Melissa Etheridge was pretty popular in the 80s and 90s. Um, I feel like she, I sort of under undervalued her at the time. Um, and now I really appreciate what... Uh, I don't know what an advocate for for desire she she was and perhaps still is I, I haven't been following her career since um, but this this song is, it doesn't speak directly to what I'm talking about but it does it does have I'm the only one in the title and in the chorus um, so that is why I chose it because the post is really about thinking that we are exceptional that we are the only one 
um, when in fact we are often not. Although the, you know, the, the narrative voice of this song may in fact be the only one, I don't, uh, we don't know. We don't know. Um, anyway, uh, one of the things, one of the pleasures of, of kind of choosing to do this project is that I am singing songs and learning songs that I, I would not have thought to learn or maybe even cared to learn. But, but it actually is really exciting to kind of um, push into to sort of songs that I, that I wouldn't, have, wouldn't have thought of otherwise. So here is Melissa Etheridge's I'm the Only One. you see my mind's a burning hell I got razors a ripping and tearing and stripping my heart apart as well tonight you told me that you ache for something new that some other woman is looking like something that might be good for you go on and hold her till the screaming is gone go on believe her when she tells you nothing's wrong I've been here before and I'm locking the door and I'm not going back again Her eyes and arms and skin will make it go away You'll wake up tomorrow and wrestle the sorrow that holds you down today Go on and hold her till the screaming is gone Go on, believe her when she tells you nothing's wrong can 
Don't you see my mind's a burning hell? Please, baby, can't you see? 